Hi everyone, and welcome back to part two of our episode with Tracy Hall and Angelique Power. I'm Mary Morton. You know who I am. Go to mortongroup.com for more information. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this podcast recording that we we recorded in Detroit at Motown Motivated Studios. Check it out if you need a podcast recording studio. They're absolutely wonderful to work with. We're back with part two of our conversation. Again, this is the first time we've been on location, and this is the first time we've actually had two parts to one podcast, and it's because whenever Tracy and Angelique and I get together, we have so much to talk about that really time literally just runs away (laughs) with us. And so this is part two. We hope you enjoy it, and please take a moment to share this with your friends. You know, that this is um, really making me think about uh, the work that we see with nonprofits overall is this idea that you have a visionary leader, they have some great ideas, and the strategy is put into place. But it is what we sometimes refer to as the back house functions mm. that don't provide the foundation <laughs> for the organization to continue to be successful mm-hmm. because we're on that path of, you know, we're, 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 make, we're creating change, right? We're helping support that. But we haven't taken the time to make sure that strategy and structure really uh, work together. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to take the time to reflect about those pieces, right? Because you're just going, going, going. And both of you talked, or particularly you, um, Tracy, about vulnerability mm. and having to say and acknowledge what you, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's okay not to know. And I think that's really hard, certainly as uh, someone who started a business over 20 years having to kind of show up uh, in a way that was not at all about vulnerability, mm-hmm. was never, you know, it was a particular way that I certainly felt I needed to show up in the room because people walked in with some judgments about who I was and mm-hmm. what the work was going to be like before mm-hmm. they we even got to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I, as you know, I went on sabbatical recently, uh, came back uh, in May and um I really, one of the things that I've learned is that I have to uh, ask for help. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling a little forklift even saying it yeah. to be able to say, um, well, one, I said to uh, two team members, I, I really cannot work the way I worked before I went on sabbatical. Yes. Uh, because like many people, it was just constant, mm-hmm. more so than any, any other time. And part of that was because of the pandemic. Uh, but to come back, uh, to have some staff changes that are, are are happening, and and to understand the impact on on me, mm-hmm. and yet say I cannot do what I did before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask for help, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to ask for help, particularly when you're the one who's holding everything for everybody else. It's so hard to ask for help. Do you know why you do that? Why I do? Why you hold things for everybody else? Because I think as the president of the uh, consulting group, that's part of my role, is to take care of everybody else and to put everyone else's, um, you know, needs and, and desires and interest, in some cases before mine, but also trying to make sure that it makes sense with what our, our strategy is. Um, we did a structure change right before I went on sabbatical, and we, you know, put into place a core management team, which might sound like you haven't had a, like a, just a group of folks 
you know, um, who are really overseeing various parts of the, of the, um, company. And part of that was me holding on to too much stuff. And so I recognized that, like I had a whole year of coaching and doing some other professional development and to get ready for a sabbatical, I had to do something different. That's good. I had to do something different. It wasn't, and people, you know, the folks who, with whom I operate uh, and, and talk to most often were like, well, what about this? And what about that? And that's something that you, because I was touching everything. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have to. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do press and speaking engagements, I'm often pushing people out. But at the end of the day, it's my name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the company's name. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. some expectation that I'm going to be in every room um, and that I'm going to you know, have something to do with every decision. And I have wanted to change that for a long time. And so the sabbatical really forced it to happen because I wasn't going to be able to leave with any amount of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, sort of comfortableness, if you will, if we didn't put that in place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I mean, when you just said your sabbatical ended in May, like that is a minute ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's going to be, and I'm so proud of you for doing, regularizing it with August and February and like continuing to do that. Right. Um, That's, and what, what um, Angelica is referring to is that I've said next year, I'm going to take the month of February off in the month of August. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's about being on sabbatical. It's a practice. Because you know what? We cannot, and I, I, I wrote this to a friend of mine. It just came out. We can't let black girl magic become black girl tragic. I, I mean, can she copyright that? Okay, that is we can't. Please. And I, the, and I also will say, yep. and I yep. want to hear yep. what you, what, because this is a question I have for you, for both of you. It's lonely being the executive director. It's lonely at the top. It's lonely. Yes. Yes. I say lonely. that all the time when I'm coaching folks. It is lonely. Yeah, you are right. trying to, you know, during the pandemic, you're trying to make sure, you know, that everyone, if you have. Your employees, you want to make sure that they have their livelihoods yeah. uh, to 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 lead their families and to and to not be in peril or have to live in a lot of a shift or liminality um, in a period where so much is uncertain. You need some stable ground, like you said. Yeah. Uh, but the the thing that I've been also aware of, uh, and and I've I'm I'm really this is where vulnerability comes in. I'm really reckoning with this is that. One is I see a lot of Generation X people dying in in their fifties, mm. um, late forties to fifties. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, I, I love I talk about music. Right, I'm talking about Miles. Look at hip hop. Yeah, we have a whole generation of icons that may not make it into their sixties. Yeah. And so what I have to understand at this point in my life as well is that I have to work in a way so that I can try to do whatever I believe my life's work to be. And that does shift. um, I mean, how I do it shifts um, in the most generative fashion. But I also have a responsibility and I'm getting very Audre Audre Mm Lordean here because Mm -hmm. Audre Lorde was also a librarian and artist. Mm -hmm. And so I identify with her so much in a lot of ways. But one of the things is that we have a responsibility to stay alive Mm. uh, because our death it's not the point of our histories, right? So we we have to kind of think a little bit about what does it mean to stay alive in the world and uh, and to be here as witness, you know, because that's our responsibility too. As much as being doers, we're also called to, you know, it, it, we are called to give the testimony, but we're also called to witness. Testimony does not exist without witness and witness does not exist without testimony, right? And so we are, in our lives, we're called to do both. And so the doer also has to have, you know, the witness. And so I, what I'm also trying to say is how do I stay alive? And I'm thinking about that because I'm three years away from when my, when my mom 
passed away, when she died un, just unexpectedly. And the other thing is that we also are a lot of in this conversations, why are we doing the things that we do and nonprofits existing to kind of do some equity around uh, wealth. And what I realize is that um, the high morbidity rates in uh, and higher mortality rates in BIPOC communities is one of the things that leads to generational poverty. Because at the time where we could be transferring wealth, like that house that we could barely afford, but now we might get to a point where we can give it to our daughter or whoever, like we die at a point when the daughter isn't at a place that, uh, or son or whoever that they can financially take it over. And we haven't been able to stockpile enough wealth to kind to get them through that. So do, mm-hmm. don't we see the cycles, right? right? So for me, if I really care about Black life, if I really care about um, LGBTQIA um, testimony, if I really care about um, people who are living with disabilities, if I care about communities that are underseen, let alone underserved and all that other stuff, I have to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Just, just mm-hmm. to witness and to act and to tell the story. So I'm my vulnerability also comes with the fact that I am a workaholic because you know like you said a lot of the way we show up at work is how we show up in our families because that's how we first found it. Okay? Yes. So yes, so if yes, you tell yes. all the things that you were talking oh, about I can't yes. let this go when I step absolutely, into the room. I'm absolutely. no psychologist or anything but you kind of telling me it. a little bit. Yes. You, know, you got uh, it. You know about cuz that's you know we That's why I asked that question. Yes. Right? You know. Okay. Yes. So but yep. at the same time if that's how we get our value like for me like okay out picturing the way I do I have to prove that I have some value. So when I come in on a scene, I want to try to do as much as I can. I don't need to be in the center. I just want to help and all this other kind of stuff. Also, I have to understand, I have to stay alive because that's not a given for someone like me. So my vulnerability also comes with if I can do something that is a value, then it feels good to be in a space. If not, and with me trying to think about can I be alive I got to figure some things out so that that to me is that because I'm wrestling with that more now when I was younger I'm like you know mm-hmm. now I'm like look each of these days it has to count mm-hmm. that's and right. if it does right we're that's not gonna right. try to force nothing that's here right. Yeah. right yeah so I mean you I could I could just cry right now. I know I know <laughs> I have to really I have pull to pull myself, myself back. back here oh I'm my pulling gosh. myself back yep yep, yep. oh goodness gracious mm. um yeah, you know everything you said. <laughs> and, and are your parents alive? No, no. My my father died when I was sixteen. My mother died when I was twenty one. Wow. And I'm the youngest, so that gives you some other perspective. Yes. <laughs> and so yeah. you said in three years will be when your mom mm-hmm. passed. And what about your dad? Yeah, my dad is still alive. Okay, he's Good. doing his you know thing, right? Good. So my parents passed. Um, I mean, my mom it was two thousand one, and my dad it was twenty ten. Mm. Jeez. Um, and so I think that there's like an awareness of death, you know, when you are like a, a parentless mm. child, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. you know, and true. so I actually live with the idea of dying every day mm. and I, I feel like I'm going to get emotional. That's okay. And that's all right. Um, and so I plan for it. Mm-hmm. 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 And let me just say this, that while you say you plan for it. Yeah. What it meant for me losing my mother at 21 was when people say, what are the, you know, you think about what's the worst thing that can happen to you. Mm -hmm. That in my mind was the worst thing that could happen to me. So everything that comes after that, 
and and that's how I've sort of approached life has been, yeah, didn't work out. That's that's too bad, etc. But it wasn't as bad, bad as losing my mother seven days after I was twenty one. Wow. Yeah. So yes, it it changes everything. I'm the youngest too. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the mm. concept of uh, living in retrospect, mm. you know that that it's already you know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is, is that it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we focused on that, then we would never do anything. That's right. Exactly. We wouldn't get out of bed every day. <laughs> we wouldn't no. get out of bed. That's right. And so the trauma of when you do experience death, it does remind you that like you do have to make meaning every mm-hmm. day. Yes. And yes. that it is limited. Yes. And nothing is taken for granted. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, I have letters that I've written to my child. I've tried to set up everything so that, like, people will be okay when I'm gone. Yes. I have songs that I want played at my funeral, like Feeling Good, Nina Simone, I already know, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and now it's documented in case anyone forgets. Uh-huh. <laughs> you really Nina Simone, Feeling Good. Uh-huh. Yeah. We got it. But I really do feel like that is, it's actually an important concept to walk with every day. And it's it's something where it's like, Tracy, you know, I, I wrote down that I need to to remind you that your room is always there. Aww. You know, Mary, your room is always there in my home mm. because we do have to take care of ourselves so that we can make meaning. But a part of the reason that I am in Michigan is because it is so beautiful here. Mm. It, it is. is. It, it really is. is. So beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there is... The trees, which you all have heard me talk about mm-hmm. the trees, mm-hmm. um, at, as far as you can see. And everything that you see above is the energy of a rooted community below. Mm. It, is, it is something about Ooh. being here. And I think that, you know, we do sort of live in grind culture. We are finding, you know, um, our value mm-hmm. in many ways with how we show up. Um, we are proving ourselves against this wrong concept about us that mm-hmm. is out in the world. Um, and all of that is extremely important. But I also think like this need to actually just connect with nature, because when the days on the planet ends, something else begins. Yes. And we return to that sort of electric thing that's rooted and stretching and connected to the stars. And so... Um, let's connect to that now. Mm-hmm. And then it is just, you know, us living our meaning, connecting to everything around us. And then when that passage happens, it doesn't feel like a failure mm-hmm. or a loss. It feels like we're just, you know, returning to this space that we're sitting in and where we feel most alive, you know? Mm. Do you all feel, and this is um, something I'm thinking about in preparing for this conversation, and I have to say, Mary, you what brings me back is not only the opportunity to be in conversation with my friend tour. <laughs> See, she just Angelique. I know, I know. Tracy-isms. <laughs> There's another the, one. The, I write the, them down. No, the reason why is because I think I have learned so much from Angelique. She is just a visionary as, as mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to say Dr. Power, because uh, she's now received the honorary uh, doctorate from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, one of yes. the greatest yes. art schools yes. ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason why, obviously, um, I love coming on your show, Mary, is because of your questions. They're always mm. 
um, very provocative and they invite introspection. But you, you were, and 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 please, I'm just going to do a little preface because you may be going here. But one of the the one of the things I think you were asking about or having us reflect on is. Uh, younger people, especially generation millennial and Generation right. Z, right. Uh, moving into the nonprofit space, moving right. into the workspace, and right. and what we're learning um, from them, mm-hmm. and and what they're bringing. And one thing that I have to say is that the the younger mon- millennials who are like in their twenties mm-hmm. in that age range, those are like my soulmates because. There is a way in which maybe because of the time that they're born that they are really seeing things 360. Mm-hmm. And they're not only saying, if I have to do it, it has to um, bring meaning or make meaning for me every day. They're also saying, if you're doing it, mm-hmm. it needs to do the same. Mm-hmm. Like there is a there is a way in which um, I think they are inviting us into some conversations. And I used to resent one. I used to resent this notion of everybody talking about self-care because, uh, well, let me say why, so that that's not just a soundbite. Because um, self-care, of course, is coming you know, from Audre Lorde's, a lot of her work on um, radical self-care because of her battling um, this really tremendous and you know invasive cancer right. uh, as an activist who's doing so much you know for others and understanding you know as we've been talking about the value of a life in order to be generative and contributing to this struggle and and really understanding that the need for uh, self-care was um, was central to self-preservation is central to being able to be effective in the struggle and what I was seeing and sometimes hearing is just oh the self-care part. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah, self-care, that is really important. But but what do you do now with that care or those resilience practices? If it's not connected to some aspect of um, generativity um, or some ac- aspect of the collective good, then does it look like indulgence, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and all of my validation has been about contribution and giving and sharing and, and self-sacrificing and all those things because of Generation X. That's what we're inheriting from the civil rights struggle, from from the Black Power Movement, you know, all of these, you know, I, I could say a lot more about that and I'll stop here. But I, I think the thing that I am seeing is that if there hadn't been in this time a conversation about self-care, I know that I know that I know that I, I don't think that I would even be able to be what where I am now in terms of there have been some times I've just literally had to stop, not for long periods of time, but I've just literally had to give myself a day or two days and not often, but just to re get my mind right or just to get my body right or just to eat some okra or, you know, just to put some okra pots in water like my grandmother used to do, you know, to regulate yourself, you know, and mm. your system and all those kinds of things. The way we're moving back into healing practices, the way that as I've been um, an administrator, as I've grown in that area, I've really grown in using my grand- mother's teachings about the natural world. And I incorporate that, you know, when I was at Joyce Foundation, you came into my place, I had vats of mugwort, you know what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm learning is that we can hold those two things at once, that we can hold this desire for service and we can hold this desire for self-care. And that I have to say and credit with um, the millennial generation for bringing into my understanding that self-care is not indulgence. It is actually the foundation of being able to be an effective leader. Brilliant. And we are going to take a short break. And then we're going to come back and talk more about um, 
youth workers and some of the other topics. This is a very special uh, episode of Gathering Ground uh, with Angelique Power and Tracy Hall. We're back in a moment. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back, everyone, to a very special edition of Gathering Ground. We are on location in beautiful Detroit. Yay! Very exciting. This is the beginning of of many more trips. So when we broke for our our short break, Tracy, you were talking about young people in nonprofits, and we're going to continue that. But I also want to make sure that we raise... Um, the issues around censorship that that you're dealing with at the American Library Association. Yeah, definitely. And I want to say that they're connected because the primary place that we see uh, books being censored, materials being censored, are in school libraries and public libraries. And just recently I was interviewed because uh, in Naperville in Illinois, there was uh, an incident of people coming in to bookstores and beginning to um, hide and confiscate, in this case, materials, any any book written by a person of color. Mm-hmm. And so I think the reason why I think that's important to talk about, especially as we think about young people, because who does that harm? That harms young people, right? So the publishing industry has been reacting to um, a world that is saying that we value diversity and inclusion, but we don't have the books that reflect uh, that commitment or that burgeoning collective commitment. And so what we saw, especially after the uh, racial reckoning around George Floyd's murder and the murder of so many uh, uh, Black people um, in the last few years, is the publishing industry beginning to say that we are going to have to put our investment where the our community's values are. So we have just begun to see more books affirming LGBTQIA and BIPOC lives. And to see the pendulum swing to the exact opposite now, to see those books, those voices, those authors, those stories, those narratives being suppressed, hidden, confiscated, seen as contraband, is something that our young people, they bear the brunt of that, right? Because what is happening is that we finally have an opportunity to say, you get a chance to learn from and to investigate identities uh, that look like those around you. And when we take those materials away, uh, they're they're hurt by that. But I do want to say as we move on to to young people uh, and thinking about um, their agency and what they're bringing to the table is that we have to understand that 
we're 70 years out of the McCarthy era where um, uh, Senator McCarthy was calling books un-American and Marxist because they talked about uh, uh, civil rights, because they challenged wealth hoarding, like uh, uh, banning Robin Hood, um, because they talked about black folks who were able to be, to provide political commentary, such as in Langston Hughes' poetry, um, was simple, etc. So we're seeing all of that again and for the very same reasons. And I think it is going to take young people once again being on the vanguard of that movement because this is just yet again a human right, which is a, a which is what information access is being challenged. And and I am happy that not only is the American Library Association fighting, we have a campaign Unite Against Book Bans. You can go to www.unitedagainstbookbans.org. But we see young people and and the parents and the families of young people. We see them as as being the leaders of, of this of this fight against censorship. So thank you for asking that question because it has everything to do with this this question of what young people in this next generation is going to bring to uh, to our communities and our organizations. Really important, and we want to we want to uh, make sure that we provide that uh, website. We'll make sure that that's part of the uh, the materials when we release this uh, episode. So as we we think about younger professionals. Um, what we're understanding is that they're less likely to stay at an organization for very long, are more interested in prioritizing work-life balance, which, again, I, I no longer really talk about work-life balance. I talk about work-life integration mm-hmm. uh, because I don't know that there is really a way to have work-life balance, um, but that's that's for another conversation, mm-hmm. and that they value equity more than previous generations. And that, of course, is in line with what you were just talking about. So what have been your experiences as you are working with the Youth Council, mm-hmm. um, giving um, young folks $100,000 and saying, go out and make grants <laughs> and do it in a way that makes sense to you? Yeah. Um, well, I am uniquely able to talk about this because I just actually did a panel at, at the Mackinac Policy Conference about Gen Z. And so um, in addition to having our young people present, we grounded the conversation and in informing people like, who is Gen Z? Mm-hmm. Who is this generation? So 10 to 25 years old, um, you know, I, I sort of call them the, the integrity generation. Mm. They are 48% people of color. So that emerging majority conversation we've been having for a long time, well, it, it's already here with Gen Z. One in five identify as LGBTQIA+. And one in three know someone who uses a gender-neutral pronoun. They ex- they value um, authenticity. They sniff it out. And so they do not, you know, I was talking earlier about not wanting incrementalism. They are really attuned to pageantry, especially like corporate pageantry. And so if you put up like a pride flag just in June, then they're like not having it. You know, and these drive decisions of where they want to work. They won't work at a place that doesn't match their values, where they want to invest. Um, there's a story about when um, GameStop, the company, was um, going to be bought out by like a hedge fund. And on Reddit, which I don't understand Reddit. I mean, there's so many things I don't understand, but Reddit is one of them. Um, and But on Reddit, a group of Gen Zers and millennials like banded together to short the stock. It's like, huh? That's right. I heard about what? this. What? Yes. Mama said, what? Yes, that's right. And if you that's guys right. remember, you know, mm-hmm. during the Trump like campaign to be reelected, that there was like a bunch of 
Gen Zers that pretended to buy all these tickets. Right. And so then they had to like brilliant have like some other <laughs> yes. tent open and then yes. like nobody showed, showed up, up and that was, was like the media story. Yes. Yes. And so and you think about the influence of that like as the election was coming. Um so their activism has like a deeper understanding of not only like the economy and how to have an economic warfare through the GameStop example, but also through um, visuals and how that dictates perception because they were raised with social media. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm fascinated by this generation and I feel like we've been waiting for them. Much like millennials, they don't want um, a piece of the pie. They want like market share in the bakery. Mm-hmm. And so, right. Um, right. you know, bringing them into a space, I think you have to genuinely want to partner and have them lead. And there is such an emphasis on like mentorship and all of those things, which I think is really important. But at the same time, um, a lot of our ways haven't been working. Mm-hmm. Our systems haven't been working. That's exactly right. And they know that. And so why would we expect them to come in and just continue it? Mm-hmm. Yes. And their their intersectional um, fluency, I think, is something that I really mm-hmm. admire. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in terms of their own identity, how they understand themselves mm-hmm. um, as these sort of multifaceted intersectional human beings, um, but it's how they analyze systems, how they lead marches. So they will at the same time talk about racial justice and climate action because they understand they're combined. And so, you know, I think that um, we made this announcement at Mackinac where we said, are there any organizations that want to work with youth strategists? And it has to be on like the biggest thing that you're struggling with today. Like, what is the thing that you're, that the Morton Group is really struggling with? What is the thing that the American Library Association is really trying to figure out? Well, then at Skillman, we will help you sit down with a group of Gen Z youth strategists. And you can have one session, you can have several sessions, but they really want to chew on this with you. And wherever you get to is where you get to. It's not a predetermined outcome. We want to document it. We want to send Gen Z artists to, like, actually make sense of what you're doing, whether it's through poetry or a blog or, you know, something else. And then when we come back to Mackinac, we'll come back with more young people and we'll tell the story of what will happen. So I think you kind of have to like, you know, back to miles, Yep. you know, yep. Um, you have to come in ready to riff mm. with respect for everyone and what they're bringing and assume and know that what comes out of it is going to be what's meant to come out of it, something beautiful and powerful and moving. Well, when we think about all of that, and let's move um, those same folks about five years down the road, right? Um, And some of them clearly are in the workplace when they're in their early 20s. What have you noticed about younger uh, professionals in your own organizations that you think is really important to keep in mind uh, in terms of their own development and understanding, which we certainly do from doing our um, search work, that they really are most interested in culture. And in some cases, that matters more than money and benefits. They want to feel authentic. They want to feel validated. Mm -hmm. They want to belong. How do you see what you're learning and what you're learning 
really um, helping to undergird this, this younger generation of folks as they move into nonprofits. Because what we also see across the country is the stores under Starbucks, for instance, right, who have unionized. That's primarily being led by younger folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and, and in most cases, when you see folks unionizing, it's being led by younger folks. So how do you think that's going to impact the work ahead when we have this group of people, you know, humans who are saying, you know, we're going to change things. And it, and it doesn't look like uh, or use the strategies that any of us may have used, which is what, of course, is so daunting and scary for mm-hmm. folks. And that's why they sort of go in the other direction. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, we were talking in the break about this bifurcated economy right. and where, where does the, what is the origin of when the rich just started to become so much richer and companies had a winner-take-all mentality and employees moved from um, being assets on the books to being liabilities on the books. You know, Gen Z is growing up in this bifurcated economy and they have this sort of collective mindset about what success is and what work is. It's like a co-op mentality that, like, you know, their success is, is... hinges on your success. It is a symbiotic vision. And so that's what they're asking for. That's unionizing. You know, that's saying like, let's let's not try to make it so that I make it as far as I can. Let's actually change like who gets to succeed and who gets to lead and who, you know. Um, and we we're at a breaking point anyway. You know, the, our economy is in a massive shift right now. Like we're moving to the knowledge economy, and we mm-hmm. sort of saw that happen. Um, that's why thoughts are being so regulated and why they're so feared. Uh, access to knowledge is feared right now, and so mm-hmm. I think that what is happening and and the way that young people um, in ten years from now we're going to look very different. The way that each of our organizations are structured the way people are paid, um, you know, the way that vacation time or sabbaticals that are regularized, like, you know, the way we take care of ourselves, the way healthcare functions, the way we talk about mental health, you know, they're, they're so easily will tell you about mental health and mental wellness and what they need. And so they will, um, lead us somewhere different. It's not like a small change that's coming. It is this sort of like revolutionary shift that's afoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think one thing that I think is really important and that I believe that younger workers are bringing, and it can cause a lot of consternation, especially uh, if you are a leader who's used to a very authoritative um, uh, style, or is that there is a demand to be heard. And, uh, you know, I have seen uh, increasingly someone starts, you know, in a position and, you know, early career and two months later, they're asking you directly a question, not they haven't talked to their manager. They haven't talked to their manager's manager. They're talking to you. I want to know this. I want to know that. And I think that in a lot of ways, it sort of pushes us to say that anyone asking any question is valid. It's a valid question and it's a valid source. And I think that is actually welcome. It's hard, you know. Absolutely. It It is challenging. The first time I remember, uh, I think, um, and I want to give this example about Juneteenth at uh, the American Library Association. Um, We had 
some, not everyone, but we had a lot of younger uh, workers uh, when everyone be, was beginning to talk a lot more about uh, Juneteenth last year before it became a, a federally uh, a federal holiday. Mm-hmm. And you saw, you saw a lot of um, organizations uh, beginning to sort of go from no knowledge at all about Juneteenth to being like one of the primary celebrants of Juneteenth. And I remember a few to um, trying to copyright Juneteenth <laughs> to oh trying God. to copyright Juneteenth. Okay. And um, and that was a holiday because my family's from Louisiana and East Texas that we grew up with, right? So I remember being asked, uh, you know, can we celebrate Juneteenth? Can we celebrate Juneteenth? And I felt like I want to answer each of those questions and bring the the folks together to say, let's talk about Juneteenth and why Juneteenth is so important to the American Library Association, because at the heart of it is this history of compulsory illiteracy. And and what I found is that, and, and then after talking about it, and, and a few people saying, well, I didn't know much about Juneteenth, but I'm hearing a lot about it, saying, hey, let's go out and study Juneteenth. Why don't you all come back with how we should celebrate and commemorate Juneteenth? And that turning into an extraordinary day of learning and service and uh, talking about food equity and uh, resource distribution that impacted the entire association. We shut down for the entire day and just focused on Juneteenth and what, what that meant to ALA. And that for me is the value of having people who feel empowered enough to come right to the executive director and say, hey, and we would have never had that come out of it. And I felt that it was my re- my response, my responsibility had to be about if my staff wants to know what is the relevance of Juneteenth to ALA and how do we commemorate it, then my responsibility is to listen and to ask that they lead us. And it turned out just in a really extraordinary way. So that's what my planned response, uh, I think, is always, you know, as much as it possibly can be to to those kinds of levels of inquiry. And I'm I'm so happy, actually, that we have a generation that feels like they're entitled uh, to ask those kinds of questions of an organization with whom they're dedicating so much of of their time in, in, you know, in in uh, exchange for pay, but also, too, in exchange for a lot of the life force that they have being given to an organization. Amen. Amen. I think we're we're going to leave it there uh, on that particular topic. And um, as always, there's just never enough time um, for all the things we want to talk about. But that just means we're going to do it again. Yeah. Uh, and so I want to end with uh, just asking you both, how do you find community? And and I think about you being in a new place in particular. Um, how how do you find community, Angelique? You know, I've been very intentional about that. And that's one of the things that I honestly miss the most about Chicago because I have many overlapping communities for my entire life. You know, I will run into like my fourth grade teacher somewhere and, you know, I've been able to pick up best friends, you know, throughout every phase of my life. And so, you know, when you enter a new space, I feel like I am in, and I've called Detroit like this graduate program that I'm in. And so I'm very intentional in um, meeting with as many people as I can and seeking community and seeking different communities to sit with um, and spending time listening to how stories are told, when pauses are made, when they lean forward. 
um, you know, when they laugh, and also just allowing for real connections to happen. And so there are some people that, you know, I have met once. I met someone in the grocery store yesterday. Actually, I was leaving this Meyer that's on like East Jefferson. <laughs> and they they set up this new like Meyer downtown. And I was um, walking out and I said something to the woman who was like in one of those mobile mm-hmm. carts. Mm-hmm. And I said something to her like, oh, are you trying to leave? And she was like, no, but you look so familiar. I was like, you look so familiar. And she's like, what part? Are you from the east side, the west side? Mm-hmm. Um, which is their, you know, south side, mm-hmm. west side. And I was like, no, I'm from Chicago. Oh, you're from Chicago. You know, do you know Marianne? Like, with no last name. You know, I was like, maybe. <laughs> and then, like, a guy that was in the corner, he came over. He was like, you do look familiar. I was like, you look familiar, oh too, you know? <laughs> and so it's like community, you know, I think that I, I'm, you know, gifted with the many overlapping communities in Detroit. And that is actually a hallmark of Detroit that is, I think, unique to this city that like people step forward to find each other here. Mm-hmm. Nice. Tracy? I think just saying yes to, you know, times like this is how I build Absolutely. community. Absolutely. You know, we're always busy, you know, it's never any time, but making time uh, for each other like this, that's that's how I do it. That And knowing that that community is gonna build me up um, more so, but I so grateful we've had this time. So am I. Um, this, to your point, is exactly how um, I, I find community as well. Um, this is really special time to have an opportunity to talk with both of you. I mean, we started last night, we've continued, and uh, I know we'll continue later today and continue in, you know, in general. And um, good thing that we're getting ready to close because I feel a little, <laughs> a little emotional yeah. again. Hey, Mary, um, can I give a shout out to your podcast that you did with Kathy yes, Cohen? Yes. Absolutely. I listened to that um, before you came oh. and it's amazing. So oh, if anyone's listening to this and they're like, ooh, I want to hear something more, <laughs> just scroll back. Like, I think it's two episodes. Yeah. yeah. And listen to the Kathy Cohen, Kathy Cohen. episode. Yes. It's Kathy really, Cohen, really good. University of Chicago, close friend. And uh, thank you so much. And so before we close, I also want to give a shout out to where we are today in beautiful Detroit. Yeah. Detroit. Yes. We are we are at the Durfee Innovation Society, and we are sitting in Motown Motivated Studios. This is just waiting for you here. If you're it's working on a podcast, space. need to do a uh, any kind of recording, please come and and support uh, the society and uh, the studio. Uh, we are so grateful uh, for all of your support and helping us uh, make this happen today. And we thank all of you who are listening. You, of course, can go to gatheringgroundpodcast.com. You can reach out to me directly. We're going to have all kinds of information about this podcast and others. And all I can say is until next time. Thank you so much for listening in for the conclusion of my conversation with Angelique Power and Tracy Hall. We couldn't think of a better way to end our season than with our fireside chat. We really appreciate you listening not only to these podcasts, but also for listening to Gathering Ground for another season. It's hard to believe that we're in the middle of summer, and we're going to take a brief hiatus and gather some new guests, some exciting new episodes, and we will see you again in September. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun, take care of yourself. This has been Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time.